chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Many of you have probably no doubt heard of the Jesus tomb and heard the the talk that's going on. As a matter of fact, there's going to be uh, there's going to be a report on it tonight, or rather a documentary on it tonight. James Cameron, who was the director of the Titanic, uh, is putting this together. And I want to read an article to you. Uh, it says James Cameron is convinced the remains of those of Christ and his family have been found. Oscar-winning director has put together this new controversial documentary which claims that Jesus may not have only been buried with a wife but a son as well. Adds to an intriguing piece but certainly doesn't solve the 2,000-year-old puzzle or mystery, uh, the filmmaker said. I'm not an archaeologist. I'm a filmmaker, said Cameron, who won an Academy Award for Best Director uh, for the Titanic. I loved, I looked at the evidence initially, and as a layman, I found it compelling. I haven't seen anything that contradicts my hypothesis. The Lost Tomb of Jesus, which is actually be on tonight on the Discovery Channel, chronicles the efforts to apply modern science and new understandings of Jesus and his followers to the 1980 discovery of a set of ossuaries or bone boxes under what now is in an apartment complex in Jerusalem. So <clears throat> what has happened is in 1980, uh, there were uh, a box of bones that were discovered. Uh, these are called ossuaries. And basically from about 50 B.C. to 50 A.D., the Jews, uh, those who were wealthy and those who were uh, in the religious order typically, would take the bones of their loved one or they would ask and make a request uh, of their remains that at one, the one-year mark, they would exhume the body, they would take the bones, and they would put them in a, in a pretty much a hermetically sealed box. It was a limestone box, and they were called ossuaries. And the thought, we believe, we're not even certain of this, but we believe the thought was that uh, when the resurrection would come, that their bones would then uh, be united uh, with God. And so that was kind of the thought process behind it, or at least that's what some speculate as to the reason they did that. So from 50 B.C. to about 50 A.D., they'd have these ossuaries that uh, many Jews would put their bones in and then have them buried. Uh, and so Cameron and his investigative journalist, uh, Jacobitzi, who wrote a companion book, The Jesus Family Tomb, uh, shortly after Dan Brown's book came out on the Da Vinci Code, who made a lot of money, and uh, basically said, uh, you know, uh, I believe here's, there, this is something that we can can use and people want to hear, and quite frankly, we can sell. Uh, and they were on the Today Show, and he said, Jacobisi, who is the journalist who's working with Cameron, said, the statisticians have looked at the markings on the bone boxes and estimate the probability that the remains uncovered in 1980 are not Joseph, Mary, Jesus, and Mary Magdalene, and a son of Jesus and other relatives are more than 101. So what they're saying is, we believe that this is it. We believe like there's 101 odds that this is Jesus. Now, what he doesn't tell you is this is actually the third time uh, in the last, uh, really in the last 60 years that we found another tomb or an ossuary that has Jesus' name on it. Uh, matter of fact, there are, in the greater Jerusalem area, which most scholars would say that's not where 
uh, Jesus' family would have been buried anyway. But forget that. Uh, in the greater Jerusalem area, they have found 99 tombs with the name Jesus on it. See, that was a very famous name. Everybody wanted their son named Jesus uh, about then, okay? That was a very popular name, Joshua, Yeshua. Many believe that's what the Messiah would be. And then after Jesus came, some of the followers, they would name their son Jesus. You know, right now we think that's kind of sacrilegious, and so we don't do that quite as often. Uh, but that was a very popular name to name your kid. Hey, guess what the most popular name of a girl was? Mary. That's right. And we found, they found, this is the third time we found a Jesus and Mary tomb, okay? Uh, and so that's not that big a deal. It's like if, uh, you know, if your name is uh, uh, John Brown, and uh, 200 years from now, you know, you marry Mary Brown and you have a son named David. And 200 years from now, somebody finds it and they go, you know what? This is my great, 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 great grandfather. Because I remember in the Metroplex, there was a John Brown there. And he had a wife named Mary and David. This has got to be it. You know, and you'd think, what are the odds of that? Well, they're, they're not that bad, actually. Uh, that's very possible. And that's basically what's happened here. And they're saying, now, um, I'm not a scholar. I'm not an archaeologist. I'm a director. But this is what makes sense to me, okay? According to Cameron, the bones were discovered in a limestone box in 1980, which is interesting. That happened about uh, 26 years ago or 27 years ago, as we know. Uh, but um, you probably couldn't have made any money on it then. And were quickly reburied following the Jewish tradition. Archaeologists discounted the theory that the boxes contained the bones of Jesus and his family because the names inscribed on the box were quite common in the region of first century. Matter of fact, the archaeologist that made this discovery doesn't think that this is Jesus or his family. But forget him. Uh, I want to sell some books. I want to make a movie. Je uh, Jacobi said that the archaeologists were too quick to dismiss, dismiss, and they never asked the statisticians what they thought uh, about the boxes and the inscriptions on them because there's the name Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. So that's got to be Jesus. And all be found, the names are all dated back to somewhere within, you know, 100 years of Jesus' time, we believe. And we're not even sure of that. These were common name, names, uh, and that's what the archaeologists said. There's so many people that were named Jesus. We found so many tombs. We found so many ossuaries with Jesus' name, with Joseph's name, with Mary's name. But uh, so the archaeologists said, you know, this doesn't look very credible, uh, but... We've got a director and a reporter who said, you know what, we're just reporting the news. We're not statisticians. We're not theologians. Now the debate can begin. Uh, you know, and the DNA experts say it's significant too. Now they're going to tell you about that, the DNA. The DNA proves it. You know what the DNA proves it? Of course we don't have, like, the body of Jesus that we can do DNA on it. But what they're saying is here's what they're doing. They're saying, well, it looks like one of those bones was not related to the other. In other words, that somebody in there was not a part of this family. Well, then obviously it must have been Jesus and his wife. I mean, that's all they got. That's all they got because one of the bones don't match. Now, never mind. Matter of fact, let me give you ten questions. And there's a guy named Ben Witherington at Asbury Seminary. Another guy named Gary Habermas at Southern Seminary. And these guys are experts in this field. And if you want to look them up on the, on the Internet, you could get a lot of great information. But I'm going to just give you... Ten simple things, and I've already uh, alluded to a couple of them. First of all, the names on the ossuaries were very common at that, night, at that time. Again, there were 99 tombs in the greater Jerusalem area, 
where scholars regard in the time of Jesus, and I'm talking about the greater area, not just Jerusalem itself, there, there were been as many as 150,000 people just at the time of Christ. Not to mention, uh, we don't know when these bones exactly can be dated to, um, but somewhere in that period, they think. Uh, so there are 99 of Jesus' of tombs. There are 22 ossuaries with Jesus' name. There's 45 ossuaries with Joseph's name. So that's a very common name. Uh, and so that's a pretty big leap. Number two, the ossuaries had the names inscribed in different languages. They were in different language. Uh, a couple of them were in Aramaic, a couple of them were in Hebrew, and a couple of them were Greek. Well, think about that. If, I was, if they were all going to be buried there, in, then why did we put them in different languages? Uh, if, if you stop and think about that, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Today, when we put our relative's name, we don't write one in Spanish, one in French, and, and one in English. Uh, typically, we would put them all in the same language. But if you're using these ossuaries over the period of decades and decades and putting your relatives in there, then that makes more sense. Um, families were typically, if you were an Orthodox Jew, you were buried in your hometown. That's what a good Jew would do because of the, the, just the great affection for your ancestors. So you would be buried in your hometown. And we know that Joseph was from Bethlehem. And uh, they grew up in Nazareth, so at minimum, you would be buried where you were raised, but most of you would try to go back to the general area where you're from and your ancestors were from. Well, guess what? Jesus and Joseph and Mary, they're, they're not from Jerusalem, okay? Uh, so that wouldn't, if you were a good Orthodox Jew, you wouldn't have done that. Um, number four, the same ossuaries as we described before were used for generations to store bones uh, Jesus' parents, we know, because they gave two turtle dove offerings, which was the offering of a poor, uh, were probably poor, and they wouldn't have been able to uh, afford such an elaborate burial. Uh, what about the existing documents that we have that already tell us what happened to Jesus? Um, matter of fact, if the Gospels are used to verify the names, where do they get the names from? For Jesus, for Joseph, for Mary, where did they get those from? Did they get those from an extra biblical right? No, they got them from the Bible. Okay, we're going to take the names from the Bible, but then we're going to discount what the Bible says about them. But we believe those names are right. We believe that part's true, but we're going to exclude everything that was said about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Why aren't there any accounts of Jesus' family being recorded in any reputable ancient writings? In other words, we don't have any other writings other than the Gospel of Mary, which was written about 400 years after the time of Christ, which has no credibility, it was written by a Gnostic writer, and it doesn't even say, this is what Dan Brown wrote his book, The Da Vinci Code, based on, it doesn't even actually say that. There's a, a piece missing where it says that uh, Jesus used to kiss blank, and, and, and from that, he assumed it must have been Mary, and not to mention this is an uncredited, unaccredited document, that no other historical documentation will authenticate and was written 400 years after the time of Christ. And virtually nobody puts any stock in it other than Dan Brown. Um, why didn't the critics of Christianity produce the body? Look, if his body was there, and then they had to go to the problem of a year later to exhume it, take the bones, and put them in an ossuary. Think about this. Eleven of them died martyrs' death. In other words, they were killed. I don't know about you, but before they kill me and I'm, I've made up a story, I go, all right, I'm lying. <laughs> all you got to do is put my arm behind my back. And I go, I'm lying. I made that up. Let me go. You know what? Do you really think that Peter would have been crucified upside down if it was a lie? 
Do you really think that they would have gone through martyr's death for the sake James, who is the brother of Jesus, who is killed? Do you think he really would have? I'm sorry, I've done everything I can. I'm, <laughs> I'm giving you up now, Jesus. This was all a big scam that we made. And you got to realize, a lot of these guys are being killed. Do you really think they went to the problem of then going back and exhuming it and then taking the bones and put them in a box and put Jesus on it and put Joseph on it? doesn't really make a lot of logical sense. And then most scholars disagree with the evidence. The archaeologist, again, who found it does not think this is the, the body of Jesus and thinks that they're basically uh, just making a big to-do over nothing. So... Uh, Nevertheless, those are ten questions we ought to ask. That you're, you'll be asked that question. You'll see it in the paper. You're already seeing the paper in the news. And um, this morning we want to talk a little bit about the foundation of how we can know God, and that's through the Bible. And we're going to look at. Uh, I'm going to give you the doctrines that are listed there. And we're going to talk about bibliology, which is the study of the Bible. Now, it's important that we know the Scriptures. It's important that we spend time in the Word of God. As a matter of fact, we have some Bible studies. I want to encourage you to be a part of. Uh, you have a little green piece of paper in your bulletin. I encourage you to look over that. We have some co-ed Bible studies. We have one that meets at 8, 8 a.m. on Sunday mornings here. And go, we go through every book of the Bible. We started with Genesis. We just did Exodus this morning. So you can get in on Leviticus next week. And I bet you most of you never studied Leviticus. Uh, but it's really a fascinating book into why we have the sacrificial system that we have. And in one week we'll go through that. Walter will be teaching that next week. And I invite you to be a part of that. Uh, and then at 7 p.m. every Monday night we do apologetics. Uh, and again, Walter teaches that, which I believe Walter to be one of the greatest apologists of our area for sure. And uh, if you want to know how to defend your faith, that is a great time to come. Uh, how do you respond when people says, say there is no God? Or how do you respond when people say, why do you believe that Christ is the only way? How do you know that the Bible is true? And those are the specific questions that we're dealing with. Then our men's Bible studies, uh, you see there, uh, one of them is going on right now. Then we have them on Tuesday morning. Then we have a student uh, adult Bible study that's going on at 9 a.m. as well. Uh, if you're students and if you want to go or if men you want to go, and then we have one for women as well. And then you see our women's Bible studies that meet uh, as well. There's one meeting now, one meeting next hour, a Tuesday and Wednesday. We encourage you to be a part of those. Those are some excellent opportunities uh, to learn the Word of God. Now, as we look at the Bible this morning, you know, one of the things that comes up, you know, is how do we know the Bible is true? And there's a couple of terms you get you hear thrown out a lot of times. One is called uh, infallibility. And in principle, what that means is that the truth and the principles of Scripture are all true. They are without error. And fallible means that uh, it could have error. There are mistakes. Now, let me tell you, I believe the Bible not to only be infallible, but to be inerrant. And what I do believe also as well, though, is that we as men and women are fallible in our interpretation. That means that we are prone to mistakes. Sometimes we misinterpret the Scriptures. Sometimes we make mistakes. Uh, I know there are things that I used to ascribe to when I was younger that I look at now and I go, I've changed my place on that. I've changed my position on that. I think I misinterpreted some things that Jesus said. You know, I, I remember, you know, when I first got... Uh, I first accepted Christ, and I don't need to go off on this tangent, but, you know, uh, <clears throat> I heard a sermon, and so I went out and burned all my secular music and, and made a vow not to dance anymore. Well, I don't feel that way anymore, okay? And that really didn't even have anything to do with the Bible, but I thought it did. And uh, that was a fallible understanding of what faith was supposed to mean. But 
as we look at the Scriptures, what we believe when we say it is inerrant, is infallible, that when God gave the Word, when it was recorded, it was recorded perfectly without error. Now, men will misinterpret and misunderstand, but that does not, cha- that does not change the reliability and it does not change the truth of Scripture. Now, we know the Bible was first written, uh, or actually spoken primarily in Hebrew and Aramaic, and then was recorded, at least the New Testament was, in Greek, and then later on have it in Latin. And then it wasn't really until 1382 that the Wycliffe Bible was the first translation uh, put into English. Uh, Then the Tyndale was written in 1525, the Coverdale in 1535, then there were a couple other Bibles that were actually written, and then in 1611, what Bible was written? King James. Now, when people tell you King James, that's the only one, that's the only inspired version of God. I don't know what they did for 1600 years before King James came along. I mean, there are like five translations in English before King James came along. The, the difference was King James had a lot of money and he made a lot of copies, okay? And uh, so that's what happened. King James is fine, but that's not the original inspired Word of God, okay? Uh, we have a, that's a copy, just like if you have an NIV, that's a copy today, all right? So when we look at the Word of God, the important thing is that we realize the truth of Scripture. And some translations are going to be a little bit different. They're going to take a little bit different approach. And there are certainly some out there that I wouldn't recommend, but most uh, are credible. Now, I want us to look at a couple of passages of Scripture, and then we're going to look at the ten uh, major... Do- matter of fact, let's go ahead and jump and do the ten major doctrines. You've got a sheet... Uh, on the back of your bulletin or on the little white sheet, it gives you the ten major doctrines. You see, bibliology, which is the study of the Bible, which is what we're going to be discussing today. Theology proper, which is the study of God the Father. Also, the Trinity would be incorporated in theology proper. Soteriology, the study of salvation. Christology, the study of Christ. Pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. Angelology, which is the study of angels, both Fallen and present. In other words, this would include demon. Uh, Sometimes you you hear the word demonology. Uh, Anthropology, the study of man, the belief that man is is distinct from the rest of creation. There's a difference between man and animals and that a man was created in the image of God. But then there's hermartiology, which is the study of sin, of man's sinfulness and his fallenness. Then ecclesiology, we're going to talk just a little bit about next week the study of the church, and we're going to talk about the direction that our church is going and where we're headed. And I want to encourage you to come and be a part of that next week. Um, I want to share some significant things with you, and we'll look forward to that. And then eschatology, the study of last days, what uh, the end times when things are come, particularly the book of Revelation, when we think of eschatology. Now, three scriptures I want us to look at this morning. First one, First Timothy or Second Timothy. 3.16. Let me just write 2 Timothy, because I've been saying 1 Timothy, the first service, and maybe I'll say it correctly for the last service. 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All Scripture is God-breathed. Now, incidentally, if you'll remember, uh, when this is being recorded right here, uh, the Gospels are certainly been orally told, but primarily he's making a reference to the Old Testament here. But we believe it encompasses the whole canon as we have it today, the whole of Scripture, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Now, God breathed. That means Deo Numa uh, in the Greek. Deo, God, Numa, that God breathed 
His Word, His character, His very Spirit on to paper, which is the Scripture that we have today. And it is useful for teaching. That word teaching means doctrine. We just talked about the ten major doctrines of Christianity. So it is profitable for you to understand the teaching, the doctrine of the faith. Secondly, and that would be the information, the knowledge aspect. Secondly, for rebuking. That word is used for conviction. So we receive the knowledge, we receive the Word of God, and sometimes as we begin to receive it, we are convicted of, of sin or of however our lives are occurring that are not in uh, direct sync with the will of God. For correcting, what does the word correcting mean? Well, it simply means this. It means to be made straight. In other words, it's like you're going down the road here and you missed your turn. You ask someone, uh, do you know where uh, Miller Street is? And they go, it was right back there. You missed it. You need to go back there and hang a right. It's correcting. It's, we're going the wrong direction. It gives us the correct direction to, to go. And then last, the training in righteousness. That word training is uh, to be shown how. So we see uh, the doctrine is the information. The rebuking is the conviction. Uh, the correcting is to be set correct or to be set right. And the training is to be shown how. That is the purpose of Scripture, the purpose of the Bible. Now, let's look at 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3, chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord and always be, what? Prepared. To give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason for your hope. That word hope in the Greek means confident expectation. Why do you believe this? Why do you expect this to occur? Why do you have any confidence in what you're saying? And it says we need to be ready to give an account. That's where the term apologetics comes from. An account, a defense, a reason for your faith. But do this with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. Those are two key ingredients I think we always want to remember. Now let's look at one more passage. 2 Peter 1.19. 2 Peter 1.19. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to the light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And... I want you to really remember this. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. Now, what are we saying there? No Scripture has come about by a prophet's own interpretation. What we're saying is, it's not like God just uh, convicted him and he goes, Boy, this is what I think God's saying today. I think this is what God's doing today. It's telling us right there that that's not what occurred. It's not just that he got, he got kind of inspired for the day. And he sat down and wrote some Bible. It says this. It says, first of all, no prophet has put his own interpretation, what he thought, his own slant. This is what it says. For the prophecies never had its origin in the will of man, what man thought was best. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. Men spoke from God as they were moved, as the Spirit worked through them. Now, we're going to talk about uh, interpretations in just a moment, and, uh, but 
I think it's important for us to recognize that the Scripture clearly tells us here how the Scripture was recorded. And that's why we believe it to be infallible. That's why we believe it to be inerrant, that it came directly from God. Now, they will use their own personalities and their own vernacular to write it. But God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, caused them to write the words they did using the gifts that they already had. Bibliology. Let's talk about that for just a moment. Now, first of all, there's revelation. And there's several types of revelation uh, first type of revelation would be what we call general revelation. We see that in Psalms 19.1 when he talks about, uh, Oh God, as I look at the firmament, as I recognize the heavens. We see it in Romans chapter 1, uh, how nature itself reveals that there must be a God. That just really, a good way to look at this, just common sense tells you there must be a creator. You know, very few people today are just outright Atheists, do they believe there's no God exists? There are a few, but they're very few. Most of them will at least come to the place where I'm an agnostic. I don't know how it got here. But common sense tells you as you look at the design of the earth, as you look at the cosmological argument, as you look at just common sense, that there must have been something that created and started all of this, that as you look at the skies, the heavens, as you look at the DNA of a cell, that there must be some type of of creator. So God himself is revealed just through natural creation and through human reason, just by pure logic, if we stop and think about it. Now, that's general revelation. Now, there's special revelation, and that's what we were talking about a while ago as we read Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, that it was revealed to prophets. In other words, God moved and spoke as he did with Moses and instructed him to write the Ten Commandments. We know God spoke to Paul. We know that Jesus Christ himself came here and dwelt upon earth and spoke, and his words were recorded. That was special revelation that was given to us. Then there's progressive revelation, which is kind of a stepping stone theology. And as we look at the book of Revelation in particular, we see that things continue to be revealed progressively as the ages occur. Now, secondly, there is inspiration. Inspiration. And we talked about that a while ago a little bit, but as God breathed the Word, there's a sharp distinction between great works of literary art. Let's say, for example, uh, you could say something like Gone with the Wind. Okay, here's Gone with the Wind. We would say, now, man, that's a great piece there, and that was a sharp guy who wrote that, but would we say it's inspired? Would we say we want to live by that? That that's direction given to us in which we want to implement our lives into this particular type of teaching? No, we would say that's simply a great work of art, a great work of literature. It may inspire us in that we're, we're encouraged when we read it or we think that was great entertainment, but we're not inspired to transform our life. We're not inspired to become more godly people where we believe that the Bible is inspired by the Spirit of God. It, uh, then second is, or excuse me, third and fourth, interpretation and illumination. Now, interpretation, I'll go ahead and skip down there. Interpretation is when I read a text and I interpret what is meant, what is being said there. And you could use a form called exegesis where you look at the context, you look at what the normal understanding of the word, the historical background, the literary genre it was written in. 
But you look at it and you say, I, I believe this is what it's saying. But illumination comes when the Holy Spirit uses that information, uses that context to shed light into my life. It helps me to apply the Word of God. Okay? Does that make sense? It's the application aspect when it's illuminated to me. When I'm convicted of sin and I change my way or I'm encouraged to minister to someone or to love someone or to forgive someone, uh, the illumination of the Holy Spirit illuminates the Word of God to me. Now, there are many interpretations or uh, views of inspiration and uh, one of those uh, and these I believe to be erroneous. One is the mechanical or dictational theory. And it's the belief that, uh, and, and the only time I really know that this was actually recorded this way would probably be the Ten Commandments. Uh, and um, and a, a couple of times where Moses was spoken directly to. But for the most part, Scripture was in this manner. Uh, it was written in the very nature and the very uh, genre of that writer. In other words, God inspired him and spoke to him, and he wrote it as he would write grammatically normally. Some believe, though, it was dictated. Every word has been dictated, and this is exactly uh, the, this is exactly what God said, and they wrote it down word for word, just as God said it. Now, there's a, the good reason I don't believe that, because when you look at the Pauline epistles, uh, and a couple of places in the Old Testament as well, but particularly in the Pauline epistles, uh, Paul's grammar wasn't good. We had to go back and correct some of the words, correct some of the spelling. I personally don't believe that God misspelled words. I don't believe that God used bad grammar, okay? So that's why I don't believe that God was literally making it word for word. He inspired them, and he, he took his word, and he wrote through their hands, but it was still in, their, in the way that they would have spoken naturally. Does that make sense? Okay, so there's a, there's a slight difference between mechanical and, uh, and what we'll look at in a moment, verbal plenary. Secondly, uh, the concept theory that God simply inspired a concept. It was just a concept and that you just kind of go with that principle and then they wrote about it. Third, partial theory. Part of it's true, part of it's not. There are some things that are true, but there are things that are not. You know, sometimes people say, I just believe the part's in red. Well, guess what? Guess who wrote part in red? Guess who wrote part in black, okay? And guess what? We didn't have anything in red until about 40 years ago. I don't know what they did for 2,000 years without any red writing, okay? That was just something we did uh, not too long ago to try to help people see some of the, the words of Jesus. So we can't go into this little theory, the words are red, I don't, I don't like those, but the ones in black, I don't know about those. Um, that's, well, I just won't tell you what that is. But nevertheless, number four, natural theory. Natural theory. Hey, it was like Gone with Owen. It was like Macbeth. They were just great, talented men who wanted to write about God. I take, and most evangelicals would take a position called verbal plenary. Verbal plenary. What does verbal mean? It means the word. Plenary means whole. The whole word of God. That God used their talents, that God used their very vernacular that they spoke in, and He wrote through them in that manner. Verbal plenary inspiration. Now, people have tried to... Uh, contradict the Bible. They have tried to uh, kill the Bible, so to speak, or to extinguish the Bible all through history. Voltaire said in 1778 that he believed within a hundred years uh, the Bible would be extinct. It would be a forgotten book. What's interesting, when Voltaire, the famous French philosopher, when he died, they auctioned his home off 
and the uh, French Bible Society bought his house, and for the next 300 years, they printed Bibles in his home. And uh, so it's, it's interesting. So many times we've heard dictators, we've heard men say that throughout history, that the Bible was going to become a dinosaur, it's going to become archaic, but yet more copies of Scripture have been sold than any other book in all of history. The Bible is here to stay. I want to reread to you once again. Uh, the Bible says in First Timothy, Second Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know, there was a, there's a Wheaton professor who tells a story of when he lived in Zimbabwe for a while and then would uh, make frequent mission trips uh, to this particular village in Zimbabwe. He talked about a man that every year he would go and he'd give out these little New Testaments. And as he would give out those New Testaments, uh, they would always come and get those. And he heard one year when he was there uh, that this one guy, that when he would bring those New Testaments, this one guy, he was taking those Bibles, those New Testaments, and he would use the paper to roll tobacco and he would smoke them. And so he was literally smoking a Bible. That's what he was literally doing. And he came back the next year and he goes, you know, now I heard that you take, uh, you take the pages of this Bible and you use them to roll tobacco and you smoke it. And he goes, yeah, I do. He goes, you know, it's cheaper for me to do that. I don't really believe this. Uh, and so you give them out. That's what I choose to do. I can do whatever I want. He goes, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you one again, but here's the promise I want you to make me. I want you to promise me that you will read each page before you smoke it. Well, he came back. He came back to the United States and said, I went back about ten years later, and lo and behold, I see this guy at the local church there. And I asked the pastor about him. He said, you need to go ask him what happened. And the guy, he went up and he said, he said you know, do you remember me? I'm the one that gave you the Bible. He said, yeah. He said, you used to smoke the Bible. He said, tell me what happened. He goes, well, I did just like you said. He goes, I would read the page and then I'd smoke it. He goes, and I smoked Matthew. I smoked Mark. I smoked Luke. He said, and then I got to the Gospel of John. He goes, and God just got all over me. He said, something just happened. I just got so convicted. I just started crying. And I ended up going and seeing the pastor and I ended up, you know, trusting Christ. He goes, I just couldn't smoke the Bible any longer. He said, just got a hold of me. You know, there's a, there's a great word that the Bible, let me tell you this. We're not always going to know all the answers. We're not always going to understand everything in Scripture. But let me tell you, that is the primary method that God wants to speak to us today. He speaks through prayer. He speaks through others. But His primary instrument is the Word of God, is Scripture. And you can say, you know what, sometimes I read it and I just don't feel anything. Hey, you know what, I took vitamins this morning. When I took them, I didn't feel anything. I didn't think, well, I'm strong. I'm ready to go now. I didn't feel anything. But I'm trusting what is in that supplement that it nourishes my body. And I'm trusting over the long term that makes a difference. Same way with Scripture. Rarely, quite frankly, are you just going to have this euphoric feeling. Rarely are you going to have some of these great insights that you're going to go out and change the world with. But can I tell you this? Day by day, I believe that something supernatural is transpiring in your spirit as you receive the breathed, inspired Holy Spirit-filled Word of God into your heart, into your life. It is ministering to your spirit. It is like a vitamin to your spirit. And when you don't feed it those vitamins, when you don't receive those minerals, when you don't receive that nutrition, you are finding yourself distanced. You are becoming unfit, unhealthy. And you'll find yourself falling away. The Word of God makes a difference whether you feel it or not. I want to encourage you to commit to begin to study the Word of God, to begin to read the Gospel. 
That's why we have these Bible studies. If you don't understand, we have spiritual coaches who will help you one-on-one. You can be a part of the Bible study. We have men's, women's, youth, children, whatever you need. We want to help you. But if you want to know God, you've got to start here. Matter of fact, I'm going to make a bold statement that some of you won't like and a lot of people will disagree with. I can tell you this. If you have a Bible, after all that God has gone through to get Bibles to us, when you think about ancient history, when there would be one Bible, one passage of the Scripture in Jesus' time for the whole, for the whole city, and then you think about even 300 years ago when most people didn't have a Bible, much less one translated in their language, and today you've got two, three, or four in your home and you choose to willfully ignore it, why do you think God's going to listen to your prayers, quite frankly? He's trying to speak to you. He's trying to minister to you. And you go, God, I wish you'd speak. But you never pick the Word of God up. Again, I'm not asking you to understand even every word. We want to help you with that. I'm asking you to begin a discipline of taking your vitamins so that the Spirit of God may minister to you and transform your life through the supernatural power of the Word of God. Amen or oh me.